0: In this episode, I talk with Dhammurato, a lineage teacher in the Thai Buddhist tradition who has gained an enthusiastic online following for his unique one-on-one teaching style conducted over Skype. We discuss Dhammurato's adventure throughout India, studying in search of magic and meditation, his encounters with gurus such as Muktananda, Sai Baba and Osho, why meeting famed meditation master Buddhadasa turned his search for magic upside down and saw him ordain as a Buddhist monk. We discuss what Damarato calls the supramundane Dhamma, hear his take on the failings of Western Buddhism, learn why he believes Vasudhimagga author Buddhagosa was either a charlatan or a fool, and discover Damarato's surprisingly simple advice on correct practice. So, without further ado, Damarato. Damarato, thank you for joining me on the podcast. And I'd like to start by asking how it was you came to be interested in Buddhism and meditation and so on?
1: I understand you worked in IT for the first part of your adult life, is that correct? Uh, yes. Yes, I was. Well, we didn't call it IT then, we called it computer science. Uh-huh. And in that regard, everyone in that world was then um, uh, an expert. But now that it's become IT, we're nerds. <laughs> So there's been a a tremendous uh, fall in the status because so many people have gotten into computers. But I was back in the old days. We're still doing gerbils. (laughs) So it it started like this, okay, that I had already gotten into a bit of meditation and judo and the Eastern kind of things when I was in high school. Started meditation then. Uh, Fast forward to graduate school, and I had a doctor recommend that I read a book uh, by Eric Byrne on um, I'm Okay, You're Okay, which led me then into TA and getting trained as a therapist and doing all of that kind of stuff, Uh, and that was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And so there was a, uh, an ashram there, a Muktananda ashram. So I got involved with that. And um, at, at about that same time, I was changing positions uh, into becoming a, a teacher at Detroit Institute of Technology. And that allowed me to have a lot of free time that a regular job doesn't. So off to India, I go and spend four to six months in India every year up until about 1980. And then it was kind of full time in India, uh, spending time with, uh, various meditation teachers. And one of the things that I was looking for was magic. And so I went to see, uh, Satya Sai Baba and, um, um, some of, some of that crowd went to see Osho, went to see, um, uh, Several in that regard. Uh, But I wound up with Gawanka and spent quite a lot of time with Gawanka for about two years or so. And then I became, uh, let us say, dissatisfied at the limit that I found, uh, though I didn't know what it was. And so I started traveling again. This time I wound up in Bodh Gaya and Varanasi and all of the Buddhist sites, and I was living at um, uh, uh, Wat Thai Bodh Gai uh, and met a Thai monk there who literally took the Vasudhimaga Maga away from me and told me to go see Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, which I promptly did. And by then, it's like um, uh, 1983. And so I spent quite a lot of time at, at uh, Wat Suan Mok, and also traveling down to spend some time with Upandita, because the Vedas for Burma were so bad, or so short-term and difficult. And uh, uh, Upandita, uh, this had been a year or so after Mahasi died, and so he would, had already established a, uh, um, a regular going to, uh, to uh, Penang in Malaysia. So I spent some time there with him and then went back to Watso and Mok. In fact, the time that 10-day retreat with uh, uh, Upandita cemented it, that, yeah, Bhikkhu Dasa is the one for me. (laughs) Oh, interesting. What was it about that 10-day retreat that cemented that for you? It was the hardest retreat that I ever did, and I was good at the Goanka retreats. But one of the things about it was, is that all the floors seemed to be especially hard, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, they had some some Asian tea and hot water available. But that's the only thing that was there, other than the one meal a day. And then the end of it was, is that it was all in Burmese, and then translated into Chinese. And so the lectures were especially long, and I didn't know anything. So I didn't get much out of it. And so I bicycled then back to uh, Wat and Mok from Penang, and uh, there I stayed.
0: That's quite a life. Let's, pa- let's um, rewind a little bit there. That's Tananda. up to
1: 1985. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. Muktananda. Tananda, uh, very interesting and charismatic Siddha Yoga Guru. Um, Can you tell me a bit about Mm -hmm. how how involved were you with him and his organization? Uh, What sort
1: of practices were you doing at that time? Um, He had a, they had a cave there, among other things. And uh, he was one who was into Shaktipat, about having the energy, you know. And they do that, by the way, the, the Buddhists in Burma do it big time, too. But they do the Shaktipat. Uh, and that it was also the meditation on the blue pearl. They used a lot of music and uh, chanting uh, to bring on joy and ecstasy. Uh, there was one chant that I liked very much. Uh, uh, it was the fire chant. And uh, uh, then the silent meditation was basically meditation on the third eye, or what they called the blue pearl. Mm -hmm. So that's basically the, uh, in a nutshell, Muktananda, but that was way back when.
0: (laughs) What do you think about Shaktipat then? Maybe you could explain a little bit what is Shaktipat for those who might not know and
1: you know how it's that's performed some, it, yeah i can put it this way let's ignore that <laughs> that's not a relevant thing anymore that was some hindu uh uh, uh hoochie goochie <laughs> okay you have to work yourself up to it that, that's what real mental development is all about anyway is working yourself up to it
0: <laughs> fair enough so the what were you doing in India uh, all of those years, you know, going there six months on, six months off and then eventually full time? Uh, and you said you were studying with, with various meditation teachers. That sounds like quite a period. What, what, can you give us
1: some more detail about that? Yeah. Go, um, uh, much of the, um, the time was spent with uh, Goenka and Vipassana and mm-hmm. the Buddhism. That I can't, I I would say that the time that I kind of moved out of Hindu magical into Buddhism magical was um, about 1980. Then it wasn't until I got with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa that I moved out of the Buddha magical into the Buddha reality.
0: (laughs) What do you mean by that? What's that distinction between Buddha magical and Buddha reality?
1: Uh, you could say it would be said this way: it's the distinction between the Buddhist religion, that is very common in Asia, and uh, also more, even more common in Western Buddhism. And then there is the actual teachings of the Buddha. That is not magical; it's very practical. Could
0: you give an example of a magical teaching that isn't part of the actual teachings? For instance, or something that's magical that's not in the real? Um, the way
1: that they look at the the law of karma is a magical belief, uh, and that everything about reincarnation and those kinds of things and wanting that most of the people that I know of have a magical belief in enlightenment, whether this is something that's actually real and enjoyable, they make it into something super high, something unattainable. Mm -hmm. And then they struggle and they don't get it because that's the difference between reality and magical is is that reality is available and magic is not. (laughs) But you do have a lot of magicians. And I saw a lot of magicians in in India. What's a magician? A magician is a religious person who tells you a bunch of crap. (laughs) Such a Sai Baba was such a magician. Only people took too many cameras too close to watch his hands. And even though he was exposed in, in great detail, in fact, the, the story is, is, on the way to Bangalore, I met an Indian woman on the train who then took me to her house and showed me an old newspaper that was page after page after page of showing the sleight-of-hand stuff that Satya Sai Baba was doing. But still, when I went to see him, it was a huge crowd. And he's built a hospital and done all kinds of nice stuff with his money. But he's still a charlatan. He's one of the best. Another one was Rajneesh, whom they call Osho. Only his trick was not to to, uh, create magic dust. His trick was to get women (laughs) into bed. (laughs) Do you think all of those magician characters...
0: How um, aware or deliberate of what they're doing are they? Is it possible to be an accidental magician, to be under your own spell, so to say?
1: In a way, they all justify it in their own mind. Mm-hmm. But some, many of them, they know they're a charlatan. It's really hard to admit it to oneself. But a clear example of that is clergy who are still on the pulpit, but have joined a website <laughs> about clergy who no longer want to be clergy, but their their whole life is wrapped up in it. And so they'd lose their wife, they'd lose their kids, they'd lose their job, they'd lose their house, they'd lose all of their friendships, all by just saying the wrong thing at the wrong time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know some people like that. Even asking the wrong kinds of questions can have you swiftly ejected <laughs> in some places. In I some know,
1: places. I have been ejected so many places. <laughs> Have you? Like, where have you been ejected from? Well, in a way, ejecting myself because I started asking questions. I might not have said it out loud, Mm. like asking the wrong questions to myself about Satya Sai Baba or Rajneesh. And in a way, Muktananda. I was kind of disappointed with, with Muktananda. That's who I went for in the first place and found not sufficient.
0: Yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, We're c- talking about these things, and in, in a sense, it is relevant to when you finally found Buddhadasa and, and, and said, this is the guy for me. It's relevant because in a certain sense, we're contrasting what, what you're going to say about Buddhadasa with what you didn't get on with in some of the other things you explored. Mm-hmm. Let's go to that point. So. You know, you're traveling around on this sort of magical pursuit of Buddhism and before that Hinduism, and then you encounter Buddha Dasa. And what, what was that encounter like? And, and what was it about that that so
1: shifted your perspective? There was a whole lot of stuff. One of them was somehow or another I was accepted, I felt at home there, and I had a lot of really clear evidence. That, that was true an example of that was huh, the first thing that uh, a Po said to me and he was standing there at the front gate of the watch as if waiting for someone and I arrived on the bicycle and he said to me where have you been I have been waiting for you now that's going to blow somebody out <laughs> how do you explain that at first, I didn't know. It was only later that I found out that he had been to Chumpon, about 160 kilometers north of Chaya. And there he was driving back. He was riding in a passenger vehicle when he saw me bicycling by. Uh-huh. And he figured... <laughs> You know this is the time of day this this guy has got he's the only place that he can stay is in Chaya, and I expected he's not going to Chaya to find a lodging. he's coming here and that was the assumption that Achan uh, Poe made. but it was more the acceptance of him than any magical belief that he had envisioned through Samati or something. <laughs> that everything is based on real reality. So what what happened next? You were greeted at the gate.
0: And how did that acceptance, um, how did you experience that acceptance?
1: What, what, how was that communicated to you? Well, one of them was paying attention to me. That was different than any of the places that I'd been in India, is that everybody was paying attention to the guru, but at once so mok, they began to pay attention to me that Achan I know, would watch out for me. He did for a long, long time, but that was something he started doing right away, was giving me good accommodations, making sure that I, uh, because uh, as a layman, getting food is not so easy, or it wasn't in those days. Now there's just a, a board of restaurants on the outside of Wat So but in those days, not much. And mm-hmm. so I was kind of at the... Uh, um, not the mercy, because it wasn't mercy. It was friendship. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would eat with the monks and, and from the monks' bowls and things like that. There was not very many. There have been from time to time Westerners who went there. But, uh, and so there's quite a crowd of us now. But that happened over a period of many years. And it was after I arrived that then Santicaro arrived. But I had already been there. And there had been another guy there by the name of uh, Brian uh, when I first arrived. And it was when that time that Brian was there that Achan Po was trying to put together 10-day retreats. And so I had already done a lot of retreats from various different ways. And then I kind of think that there was one time when Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was giving a public talk. And I was sitting fairly close so, so that he could see me, not just... Because it happened the way that it did. I didn't go find a place, but I was there fairly close Mm. in a small group. And so I was able to maintain the whole talk that he gave, which was, I don't know how long, 45 minutes, an hour or something like that, in the lotus posture. Because I'd already been practicing that in India. And I think that that helped cement that relationship that he knew that I was serious Mm. Not that I was showing off, but that, you know, but I kind of was. <laughs> and so that got Vika Dasa's attention. And I always felt that way. I always felt really cared for. Mm. That there is a friendship in the Sangha that I found there. I found it immediately. And I, and it's still there. I still have a really warm relationship with Achan Po, though now he's 87. So for those
0: who don't know, which I think will be a lot of people, who is Buddha Dasa? And you talked earlier, as we were chatting before we began the interview, that in many ways, he was quite a revolutionary.
1: Actually... I would prefer not to think of it as a revolutionary. Rather, what he did was he found the clog in the drain and removed the clog, and that upset a whole lot of frogs and swamp people. <laughs> and so the story goes like this, that he was giving a public talk in Bangkok while he was there in his Pali studies, and that in this talk, he uh, was talking to the super mundane Dhamma, and that... Um, it upset some of the people in the audience that got back to some of the high monks in Thailand. And the next thing, you know, they're having what they call a Sangha de Sessa, which is a meeting of, of a group of monks of 20 or so. When it's done for the ordination of a new temple, then the more, the, the better, but it requires at least 20. And so there was a convention or a trial convened about this. Because the word sangha, decesa, actually means to not split the dhamma or to not split the sangha. That there's some rules in the Paddy Malk about let's not break things up. Let's not have dissension. We're going to stay together on this. We have to come to a, a degree of what they mean eventually by covering over with leaves. Whatever the problem was, if we can't solve it, we just cover it over with leaves and forget about it. All right. So uh, in this Sangha de Sessa, uh, the super mundane dharma, which is basically that the, the real teachings of the Buddha is really real. It is really doable. It is really enlightening and that if the enlightenment is real. In fact, the word enlightenment is not even a very good word for it a better way of uh, looking at it is to be free from the suffering that we normally cause ourselves. So it's freedom, freedom from suffering. But in fact, the word dukkha doesn't really even mean suffering. It just means dissatisfaction. So when we become fully satisfied with life, whoopee what else is there to do (laughs) and so that's the real teaching in other words um in the original sangha, it was actually nothing but a group of hobos that were just out in the woods having fun just not in raucous laughter all the time (laughs) so vika buddhadasa was letting this point out and the main teaching behind it is the teaching of anatta which means there is no self there's no center Uh, Now, the word Atman or Atta actually has ancient roots, but they don't go to Greece in the way that we thought that they would. It's not atom like uh, the atomic uh, particle, you know, uh, the atom of hydrogen can't be split. But rather it comes from the word uh, Atman, and -hmm. the word Atman is the word that we have coming to us as atmosphere hmm okay a t m o rather than A-T-O-M. a t o m and a good friend of mine pointed that out to me recently because all this time i had thought that the relationship was between the atom no it's this atmosphere which has to do with the breath so atmosphere means the sphere of this atmos which is not We're talking about very ancient mindedness. We would call it air and get on with it. But back then, they knew that there was something there, but that they didn't know any much about it. And so this was where the idea of spirit comes from. The word expire also has to do with air to breathe out. And so this is where that concept of Atman came from. But then over time, it became a soul, something that was not, it was ephemeral, but that it was also permanent. It was long-lasting, eternal even. And that was what the Buddha was teaching against, is no, things are not eternal. Things are not long-lasting. Everything is temporary. And that was what the major difference. difference was is that in the Brahmin system they had it uh actually brahmanism got started from they say well why are you guys the priest why can't we be a priest at this uh uh temple and the brahmins would say oh well we're Brahmin because we were born brahman and we were born brahman because we were good in the past and you're not born brahman because you were not good in the past and that was the birth of the theory of kama happened about 800 B.C., and so about 500 B.C. In the, in the 400s when the Buddha was around, he was saying, no, guys, no, Kama is real, but it doesn't work like that. And so this is now the teaching that has, what had happened, though, is in the time of Soak, about 300 B.C., uh, because, uh, the, <laughs> let us say, uh, the, the, gay hobos in the woods became, uh, uh, loved by the emperor. And so he started sporting them, accommodations and food and robes and all of that kind of stuff, which that meant that every mendicant from every other religion or tribe all joined this one which then overwhelmed the actual teachers who could teach. And so the students began to uh, teach themselves. And that's when all the magic started to pour back into and has remained in Buddhism ever since. But always along there, that thread has always been a thread of nobles who really understood the teachings of the Buddha. And that thread actually wound its way into the Royal family In Thailand during the Middle Ages and had remained so, so that through Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, going back to that trial that he was in, it caused a great amount of uh, consternation because there were those who were there in the know and knew that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was right and that there were monks who were there who were not in the know, who were still part of the religion and also, by the way, possibly corrupt and making a lot of money on it. So that actually divided the sangha, de Sessa, which is not possible. They're to, there to try Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and they wind up having to go into conference. And that conference lasted for months, while in the process there was a Pali, let us say, search put on. And also the, uh, many of the monks who were uh, part of the Buddhist religion then became converted into the real Dhamma that is is real. And so the outcome of the Sangha De was of two major things. One was, the outcome was, is that he is teaching the right thing to the wrong people, which is the way that has always been, that there is the right thing, but it's got to be taught to the right person. But now Bhikkhu Buddha Das is out there teaching the right thing to the wrong people, but it also made a friend with the the Sumdat. his name was Bhikkhu Buddhadasa Jurn, and he was the head monk of the entire Thailand at, uh, I, I think he was at, at Wat Tim in Bangkok. And so um, he took Bhikkhu Buddhadasa then as a student. Now that's amazing that this Southern boy who was loud but he disagreed with the teachers, he had his own way of looking at the Pali. He had figured it out for himself, and he's making a splash on <laughs> basically downtown Bangkok, and he gets the eye of this major monk who already knew what the right dhamma was, and so he took Bhikkhu Buddhadasa as a student. And so that's the lineage now that that I have through Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. Is it goes right back into the royal family and the lineage of the... Um, uh, there's a, a famous one. About 1917, he had to disrobe so that he became the king of Thailand, duties of office. And so he disrobed, but he still had this enormous following. Well, he was born in 1860. He was uh, born to King Mangut, uh, and his older brother was Tula Longhorn. So if you know anything about the, uh, the movie, The King and I, I'm naming names. <laughs> so this is the lineage where this comes from. And it goes back to that. And it also showed me that <clears throat> I had originally thought that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was, in fact, on his own. It was only in kind of recent years when I actually was able to trace this lineage back because they gave celebrations uh, for Uh, his 110th anniversary or something where they opened a huge website, had a lot of people give talks and things like that. And so they're beginning to put the life of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa together. Okay. So uh, that lineage meant that now Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is well known by the king. In fact, the first time that I ever saw the king of Thailand was at Wat Suen Mok where he had come there to the dedication The only person that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was the uh, Upajaya, and I'll tell you about that in a moment, was for the son of the prime minister, who was finally able to twist his arm. But mostly, he was a bull. He was a lion. He did what he wanted to do. And that he had a huge, huge following, still a huge following in Thailand, and quite a number of monks. In fact, the first monk that I... Uh, the, the first time that I met Achan Samedo was at Wat and Mok. He was there with Achan Cha. Achan Cha is a well known student of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, but up in the Northeast, they say, oh no, he was a student of Achan Mun. Yes, but Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa became the Achan of many of the teachers in, in Thailand, that he became kind of the grandfather of the openness of let's get the Dhamma out there to the public and so it's no longer hidden away so Achan Po has asked me to come onto the internet and now spread the super mundane dhamma, the dhamma that is actually liberating if you can remember.
0: (laughs) So what was life like? What was the sort of practices you were doing? You ordained eventually, didn't you? Yes, 1984. So what, what was the day-to-day life like, and but how was this supramundane dhamma implemented or uh,
1: practiced by yourself? Well, I would say mostly in seclusion. The wake up would be, to, uh, um, let us say, in time to go for pendabot, though some get up at four. Many of them don't. Uh, the chanting is not done much at what so on Basically, it's done by visitors, monks who come from other temples, and they stay at Wat Suan Muk. Over time, they stop going to chanting. <laughs> but there's always a lot of new monks coming in. So um, we start on Bendabat, and Achan Po in the beginning would go take uh, a, a group of students out, one or two. And then we would come back and have uh, the main meal of the day at 8 in the morning. After that, that's, that's kind of it. In fact, in in a, in America, when I was living in the uh, Watson, North Carolina, they would ask, well, what do you do all day expecting it to be like the monk's life? And I said, well, I do lunch because that's about the only duty. And so the rest of the time is spent. In seclusion. And one of the things that Achan Po would do as part of the teaching is that he would come and stand outside of the Kuti. Waiting for me to figure out on some level or another that he was out there. That's the kind of dedication that he had for me. His English wasn't good and so most of his teachings were done uh, as one-liners. Like, uh, not sure. Another one he would say would be ta ta which actually translates to be here now. So how did you begin implementing some of those one-liners? What were you doing in that kuti? When I was practicing do, uh, correctly, enjoying it. And when I would get bored, then I would recognize eventually that I'm bored because I'm not practicing correctly. And what is correct practice in that case? Well... Wrong practice, then, would be defined as being bored with it. (laughs) And correct practice is when you're not bored with it. Is being bored with it itself the wrong practice, or is it the result of the wrong practice? The boredom actually could be seen as, one, a mental hindrance in the sense of restlessness, restlessness. But then that boredom and restlessness can also be seen as a deep underlying fetter it is actually quite closely associated with what we would call the uh, survival instinct. And so uh, needing something, wanting something, a very, very tiny anxiety, et cetera, like that. But it winds up being expressed as being dissatisfied with the moment. Mm. And if we can remember that we don't have to be dissatisfied, that we can be joyful instead, then we can start to practice correctly. Now, I use boredom as an example, but uh, uh, there's other hindrances, and that is doubt, doubt about the practice, or wanting something that we don't have, or having to put up with something we don't want to put up with, or not breathing very well so that we get dull, These, by the way, are the five hindrances I just mentioned. You probably know them. And that the whole practice in is to remember that I don't have to be in any of these five hindrances, that I can be free from them instead in this moment. And how does one become free of the five hindrances? By remembering to look. That's the first thing. That sati is often uh, translated into English as mindfulness but a better way of looking at it is to remember or to remember to wake up or another way of doing it or saying it is to remember to look at what you're doing, which it also would be step nine. If you want to put them in steps, uh, of anapanasati, which is to experience the mind, to look at what the mind is doing. And so if the meditation is, is to watch the breath Then we look to make sure that we're watching the breath. And when the mind wanders away, where does it go? Goes into hindrance. And now the job is is to remember to look, which means remember to come back. And so we have sati. We remember to look. When we do, then right view kicks in. Oh, I was going to be watching the breath, and here I am in what we call junk thought. And so then we have to take the right effort to come out of the junk thought into a thought about the present moment. And an easy way to do that is with step 10 of Anapanasati, gladdening the mind, and we can do that by saying, aha, I caught you. Aha, I see you, Mr. Hendricks. And by having that thought, aha, I caught you, we have actually chased out and not thinking about what we were thinking about when we were in hindrance now we're in the present moment i'm seeing the hindrance rather than merely being stuck in it and so that's one's right effort this gives rise to then right attitude right attitude is not the attitude of the victim who is victimized by his own thoughts but rather the champion who can think the thoughts that he wants to have so we have the Eightfold Noble Path in progress. We have right view, we have right sati, we have right effort, and we have right uh, attitude. When we start to practice in anapanasati a little bit more deeply, we start incorporating deeper breathing so that we keep the mind occupied or oxygenated. We, we allow the body to be fully aired up, have a lot of breathing. Um, they teach it at some of the retreats at Wat so Mok. and Uh, So the breathing then, with the gladdening of the mind, will then change the attitude that I can do this. And that I can do attitude is really powerful and important. And the Buddha would refer to himself as a lion. Now that's the right attitude. The attitude of being a winner. And it's to be cultivated. It's a skill to be developed. In fact, sati is the first skill to be developed. Right view is a skill. Right effort is a skill. Uh, and all of the aspects of anapanasati are considered skills to be developed. So once one gets to, that, uh, to this point, then that we begin to gather the jhana factors. And the first jhana factor that we want to work with is what is called piti or wrongly translated as rapture but it has a lot to do with that feel good to feel the joy of the win and the success that we can talk ourselves into we actually begin to breathe into it and experience that feeling and then we let that uh melt kind of into satisfaction and so satisfaction or sukha is, is, is another jhana factor. We've got the mind breathing, or we got the body breathing well, getting the mind oxygenated. And so now the mind has got uh, a state we call fit for work. And so now we have all the jhana factors for first jhana collected together right there by practicing Anapanasati. And so that's in basic how you, how you get started. Eventually, the sati, turns into finally satipanya, or remember to be wise, remember to see what's going on, remember to experience how you feel, remember to feel the way you want to feel. So
0: when that technique of watching the breath is taught, very often it's said, when you notice you've been distracted, come back. But you're saying in addition to that, to in your mind think something like, aha, I've caught you. Which is a step that is not often presented, at least when I've heard that technique
1: taught. Yes, that's that's what happened with the Buddhist religion, is some of the really key elements of the right practice were removed intentionally. Intentionally, you think? Intentionally. And it happened around the time of the Vasudhi So the Dhamma was in, I believe, though the other frame or the other way of looking at it is, is that uh, Buddha Gosa uh, was a really, really smart, intelligent fool, a bookworm who had no experience in practice. And so all of the magic of the Vasudhi Maga can, uh, can either be seen as an, an absolute ignorant doofus who was also a very high scholarly professor or you can see him as a charlatan those are the only two options
0: you might have to uh, unpack that a little bit because the Vasudhi and Burugosa are held by many uh, to be um, sort of pretty, uh, held pretty high, let's put it that way. Can you uh, unpack a little bit what you've said there about
1: Buddhaghosa and the Vasudhi I thought I just did. <laughs> I thought I impacted it as far as it needs unpacking. Get it that far, you can grab that book by its cover and throw it away. <laughs> now, that's much more of a Thai viewpoint because that book is well-loved in Sri Lanka, is well-loved in Burma. But that does not mean that there are no nobles in Sri Lanka or Burma. That, in fact, the first time that it happened to me, it caused me thinking that not only is this not Pan Thai, that it's localized Thai, but that it's also just Thai. But then when I was around other monks from other traditions, I came to find out that, oh, no, the nobility is there. It's just that it's kept quiet. Mm. That that's the difference, okay? So even those who give homage to the Vasudhi will then recognize that most of it is to be ignored, or let us say I, a certain portion of it.
0: And it's kept quiet because of the sort of thing that happened to Buddha Dasa when he didn't keep quiet.
1: Right, yeah, right. It's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it's really dangerous for me to state this stuff so publicly, but I've got the safety of the internet. There's very li- unlikely any forty-five caliber bullets to be flying out of the screen of this PC.
0: <laughs> Why do you think it's considered to be so dangerous? Something like saying in your mind, "Aha! I caught you" when you when you're distracted, or something like the breathing. Why it would be necessary at a certain point? to do something to your breathing in
1: order to stave off dullness and so on. Okay, you've asked a really key question. And that has to do with one's progress. Once one gets to a certain state that we can begin to really see what's going on, the map that we use is considered to be Paticca Samupada or in Thai Paticca Samupada which is a map of the mind. But in the Vasudhi that map is laid across three lifetimes, which means it's impossible to operate. But if you have it as Mm. another way of looking at it as three lifetimes, the three lives would be the immediate past, this present moment, and the immediate future. And those are the three lifetimes. And in that regard, it is broken out. And that uh, I can imagine to see that those three aspects of it were well known. It's just Buddhaghosa just put it back into Hindu terminology, thinking that uh, the rebirth is across bodies rather than across mental states. That that's what the real rebirth is, is when you begin to see how you are reborn and that you're not any of the things that you temporarily were because everything is fleeting. Then you come to understand correctly the personality view. Uh Oh, all I am is a process. A mental process happened within the human mind. Hopefully, the human part of the mind is what we're using here rather than the reptilian part in the back. But a lot of people do live an instinctual life. They, They operate solely by instinct rather than by waking up the frontal cortex and really pay attention to what's happening. And when we really pay close attention to what happens, happening, we recognize I'm not the body, I'm not the feelings, I'm not the consciousness, I'm not perception, I'm not all on my memories or any of that kind of stuff, that I am uh, a process and also I am a vessel or a vehicle or maybe even a bucket for my dissatisfaction. And when I am not selfish, I'm not dissatisfied. The selfishness and dissatisfaction go hand in hand. Somebody wants to borrow a little money from you and you say no, then both of you are dissatisfied because of the selfishness. But you say, oh, no, here you go. Pay me back when you can. Then everybody's happy. So that's a little simple example of of that. But that's the self is when we become selfish. I, me or my. Well, that then, understanding that personality view, then begins to loosen our hold on the reality that we would call society. And we recognize that we are bound by a set of rights, rules, rituals, laws, ways of doing things, et cetera, that are not liberating. They, in fact, in many cases, are uh, dissatisfaction causing, like going to school. No kid wants to go to school. But they're made to go to school, and so they go to school, they learn the ABCs, but they do it with a kind of resentment, and then we keep that resentment built in for the rest of our lives, so that everything we do, we resent doing it, because it's being told to us to do from the outside, rather than us figuring out, hey, what a wonderful idea, I'm going to learn to read, and when you do it with that attitude, it's not so much suffering. So... This is the way to begin to look at it is is that all of that stuff that's unsatisfying was basically things that we learned when we were really little kids, really really ignorant. All the furniture was really big. People could pick us up when we wanted to, and we were dependent upon them. And so we have to do what we're told to do. But now that we recognize, wait a minute, I am just a process, and I can process any old way that I want to, and so out that goes. Now, in psychological terms, within Freudian psychology, that part is called the superego. Eric Byrne called it the parent ego state. The Buddha, he had his own language for it. He called it silabata paramasa, which means attachments to rites, rules, rituals, ceremonies, and whatnot like that. When somebody comes to that state, he's pretty radical. He doesn't see the way that most people see stuff. But that first fetter is to recognize that I'm responsible for what happens right now. The future will have to take care of itself. And if I've got the skills now to take care of the present moment, I may likely have the, the skills to take care of the next present moment. Even when one of those next present moments is the prompt, my moment of death Can I be happy and satisfied that finally you've come? Finally, this old body is worn out. It's time to go. Ha, (laughs) bye-bye. Or are we going to be terrified at the point of death? So this is one of the reasons why Buddha was kind of big on getting around corpses, seeing autopsies, watching bones bleach, that kind of thing, is because it's going to happen. And if we're ready for it, it'll happen wonderfully. And if we're not ready for it, It'll be a, a misery. Well, you see, the people who believe in rebirth are kind of still afraid of death. And so the rebirth that they believe in is very much like reincarnation. or In fact, it's about the same thing. But that's not what the Buddha taught. He taught to, to stay away from rebirth. But there's a lot of people who believe in reincarnation, a lot of Brahmins who came to him as students. And so he knew their system really, really well. He was able to speak their language to get them going, so that then he could actually begin to teach some some real dharma. Mm. But now, modern day, people read that stuff and they say, oh, the Buddha taught rebirth, the Buddha taught blah, 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 and it's not there because people believed it doesn't make it true, Then in fact, there's quite a lot of ifs in there.
0: What else do you think somebody practicing from the Vasudhi Magga, say, would be missing? There's this three lifetimes presentation which you're, you're saying is, is the past, present, and future. What are the other key things, or a couple of other key things, that someone from the doing the Vasudhi Maga approach might
1: be missing, or be misled about? All right. One of them has to do with karma, and the understanding of the law of karma, in the sense that if I do this now... Someday off into the future, I'll get some good result. And if I do something bad now, then eventually I'll have to get uh, punished for it. And if I die, the common machine's going to dig me up just so he can slap me around. That's uh, kind of a funny way of talking about it, but that's basically what the thought is. All right, so with that, then, a lot of people who are into Buddhism, listening to a lot of the words of the Buddha, but still have that kind of belief, they say, oh, well, this life is such a suffering and drudgery, and I don't really have the skills to actually meditate myself out of a paper bag, let alone out of my own suffering. Let me donate to the temple or put some uh, food in a box bowl so that I can make merit for the future. What that means is, is that most people who call themselves Buddhists don't have a shot. They don't have a chance because they never even start to practice. But in the West, uh, uh, what they call meditation has a much kind of a better uh, gig to it that is part of the, uh, of the deal. And so they'll meditate But they're still expecting future results. I'm going to meditate now, and I'm going to work really hard, and someday I'm going to get something out of it. It's almost like after 300 or 3,000 hours of meditation, the common machine is going to waltz into the meditation hall and do some Shakti Pot or something, and then you're going to feel good. Mm -hmm. Right? That's where a lot of that kind of thinking then comes from. So then they don't practice hard enough. They're not practicing correctly because they're expecting just the sitting to do it for them, and so they just leave their mind in hindrance and not pay attention. On the other side of that, then, are those who really want proof of reincarnation, so they're going to work really, really hard. They're going to do some jhanas or do some stuff to get themselves into states so that they can see what they're doing or see past lives. And then... That's how they practice, and so they wind up being failures at actually getting anywhere But on the other side of the coin, they may continue to practice until they have some sort of emotional experience. Maybe, in fact, they get so exhausted and so they finally relax. And in that final relaxation, which they think they got to by being working so hard, they now have a wonderful, marvelous experience that they don't quite have the words for nor that they do know exactly what they were doing or how they get into it. So bingo, that becomes a past life experience. And by the time they can tell it as a concept in the story, they've embellished it and even talked themselves into that experience was a past life experience. And then to crown it off, now I'm going to write it down on a certain day at a certain time in a certain place. I had a certain experience that I now declare was a past life experience. If they do that, now they're stuck. Now there's no hope. All they can what? do is call themselves an hot, but they don't have a chance of getting it because they've already proven that they're practicing incorrectly. And so they're not about to come to this present moment and say, wait a minute, all I have to do is be happy right now because there is not a me that's going to be reincarnated anyway. But the other side of that also is those people then read those accounts and believe those stories And then hope for them and never have any of those events. And so that's the way that their meditation practice goes. But for those who do have experiences and they don't know quite how they got them, then we'll long for them again. I want to repeat performance. Or I want the second movie. And now they're longing for something that they don't have. And so now they're in a new state of suffering because now they have something to expect to happen. And so these are many of the pitfalls that come with the belief in rebirth. Either you don't meditate or you're not meditating hard enough or you're meditating too hard or you're expecting too much or you're inventing stuff. This is all of the problems with the Western Buddhism as it's practiced normally.
0: You mentioned the word arhat there. I'd be interested in what your in what your definition of of an arhat is, but also actually you mentioning Western Buddhism there, you know one of the Vesudimaga informed strains of that, which I'm sure you're aware of, um, is what they call the pragmatic Dharma movement, and I, I'm sure you know quite a bit about that. But one of the features of that movement, I would say, is the allegiance to the four path model, going from stream entry through to arhat, and as if you want, watershed attainments that create some sort of permanent shift in the person or in the person's experience. This is something that one practices to achieve, and what, having achieved it, one keeps that achievement. Uh, that's that's a frame I think that's quite common there. Uh, what's your take on, on that sort of four-path model approach, as I've described it, and also what is an arhat? All right,
1: let us say this that an arahat is, first off, not a person or a being or even the kind of noun that we look at it. But rather, what I was using it was is in the context of someone claiming to be yes. an arahat. So what we're actually uh, looking at is um, a reflection Looking back over a long period of time of seeing that, yes, I have been free from anxiety for all of this long time. Yes, I have been free from anger. Haven't gotten angry in five, seven years or so. Yes, I've gotten to the point that I live a very easy, non-materialistic life with no need to go shopping. So, yes, I've gotten that part. So we begin to tick these things off. One would be I'm I'm no longer competing with anyone, that I'm just living a natural life and everyone is a friend. In fact, the, the, the point about friendship is the most important quality because that's something really deeply buried in the psyche that we would call the conceit or the self-preservation instinct means that we gotta preserve ourselves against something and we put people's faces on that and then we call them competition. And so when we change that view, then we can come to see everyone as a friend. No need to have any competitors. The next point would then be also being free from fear. Most specifically, free from the fear of death. Because if you're free free from the fear of death, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? So therefore, what's to be afraid of? And so we become fearless. That's one of the most important qualities that uh, that the Buddha had. And yet, acceptance of death. In the Pali, this is the uh, uh, the two sides of the coin of uh, Rupa Raga and Arupa Raga. Lust for life. And then lust for non-existence are both given up for living in this moment joyfully right up to the point of death and then experiencing that happily. And so these are the high fetters and that they're based upon reflection. Or another way would be if you want to judge someone to see what state you think they're in. And this, by the way, is quite common. I've heard several stories about it. A couple of years ago, Brenda, a friend of mine, asked, I overheard this important monk talking to an old layman in Thai language, and Brenda knows Thai. So she was understanding that this monk was saying that Achan Po had attained, that he was arahat, and she wanted to know, how is he going to know? Well, we're giving the answer. You watch somebody over a long period of time, and if they never ask for anything, they don't want anything, that they're just good to go, easygoing, if they never get angry, if they're uh, always friendly with everyone, don't, don't have anything, that they don't have any place to go, they've always got time for you, et cetera, like that, then these are the ways that you can see that someone has attained, because these are actually, I'm ch- taking off items on uh, the high five, the high fetters. So we've already talked about the first three fetters are those that are uh, free by uh, knowledge. Once we come to the third fetter, which is uh, complete freedom of doubt about what is and what is not the path of the Buddha, then that's the uh, about the midpoint between the path and the state of Sotaphan. Now a lot of people on the internet are claiming sodapon, but they don't even know all of the various stages, but they're very clearly laid out in various suttas. And so you ask about the pragmatic Dhamma, the pragmatic Dhamma, from what I understand is, is that they understand that the Buddhism that came from the east to the west, that is called Western Buddhism, flat out, don't work. As many adherents that have it, with all the people who practice it, nobody's getting anything out of it. And so the pragmatic Dhamma is saying, wait a minute, let's go find out what is real because there's got to be a pony in that ho- pile of horse shit somewhere. <laughs> 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 and what they don't realize is, yes, but in Thailand, they've known about it all along. It just has not gotten out that i've heard students say that i'm more pragmatic than pragmatic dharma <laughs> i don't know i don't know any of them but i do in fact i've had students who have been associated with pragmatic dharma especially in seattle area but now all of the various members with all the various factions of pragmatic dharma i don't know everyone And so others may say, well, we disagree with that a little bit. The pragmatic dharma that we're looking for is the dharma that is known in Thailand. And I said, "Okay, (laughs) there you go. And what about that four stage path that some
0: factions of the pragmatic dharma movement orient their, uh, you know, the path of insight, uh, obtaining stream entry and all the way up to Arhat as things that you attain and things
1: that that you keep? The answer is no, they don't keep Everything is temporary. Anicho Atta Sankata. If you don't watch where you're going, you will stumble and fall down. Period. Your, will, your beard will grow even if you shave it off. The first time you shave is going to be a whole lot of work. But if you don't <laughs> shave it every day, it's going to keep growing back. Period. Don't think because you get a yeah. really close, nice shave that you're shaved for good. That don't happen. But the yeah. skills of shaving become exquisite. So you go, tch, 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 tch. done. Nothing to <laughs> it. Easy going. But the first time you shave after a really long beard, is not so easy. <laughs> and so this is actually a way of looking at it. The yeah. Getting the mind cleaned out is a whole lot of work, but you still have to keep it cleaned out. There will always be um, weeds in the garden, but after five or six years, not so many, only an occasional weed. On occasion, what I mean like once every five or six years when you get really good at it, okay, because um, you're able to see dissatisfaction as it arises without bringing on anger. That the things that used to make me angry don't make me angry anymore and eventually get to the point of I'm even not even thinking about it that it used to make me angry, whether I'm just not angry. Instead, I've got a joyful noise to make. <laughs> so let's go back to the point of Soda because that's true all along the way, and that one of the most important qualities of the first step of sodapon that is noble, super mundane, a factor of the path, and not shared by ordinary people, is to know that they can clean the mind out of hindrance. That no matter how obstructed or hindered the mind gets, no matter how badly we feel, we can take a deep breath, we can dust ourselves off, and boogie on down the road. And when we know we can do that, that's the first step of Soda pot. But then it goes really uphill from there. One of the ways of looking at it is, is the guy ordained or not? Because if someone gets to the point that they want to ordain as a monk, and they're doing it for the right reasons then you know that their dedication to the path is strong enough that they're willing to commit to it full time. But the guys who are on, that are on Soda Pond, and on Stream Entry, on Reddit or something like that, more than likely not. Because they're trying to figure out what it is from some book or something rather than correct practice. This is one of the reasons why students need teachers. You get to page 97 of the book, the book is unlikely to say, hey, wait a minute, you're not doing what I told you to do on page three. Go back and read what you need to read and stop reading up here where you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but books don't talk about it like that. And also, books are organized. There's always a chapter one and a chapter two. Same thing with retreats. The same retreat, 10-day retreat by Goenka is the same retreat taught over and over and over again, the same retreat. Always expecting new students. So the advanced students, they just do the same first retreat over and over again. Or it's like grade school. You go to first grade, and everybody then goes to second grade, and everybody goes to third grade. By the time the kids are into fourth grade, they don't need to be in grades anymore. They need to find some better way, rather than how old a child is, is to find the right placement for him. And that would be a more natural way of doing it. And so that's the right way to practice the Dhamma. also is natural, rather than in an organized method. And so Bhikkhu Buddha was very big on, let's do this naturally, let's do it as things come, rather than according to the uh, chapter of the book that we're in.
0: You've written here on your blog, while the Buddhist religion has been prepared for a mass audience, and traditionally delivered to a mass audience... The supramundane Dhamma of the Buddha is best taught in a private setting where the spiritual friends can assist the students in correct understanding by way of questions and answers, sutta comparisons and instruction on correct practice that will lead you to joy, well-being and happiness for a long time. And from what I understand, you teach a lot of students for free via Skype in this personal dialogue format, and many of those dialogues are available to watch on YouTube. If people Google your name, and I'll, and I'll put a link to your YouTube channel yeah. in the show notes here. Um, you know, you, you've begun to talk a bit more there about, about that way of teaching and why it's better than, uh, than group work. Um, what type of students are, are coming to you on Skype, and what is it typically that they want?
1: Students from all over the world. The, the primary quali- quality is, is that they speak English. Though some of them not so well. Many of the uh, uh, talks are not recorded. Women especially are more shy, and so mm-hmm. they don't want it. Also, college professors, deans, psychologists, doctors—they're also the kind that don't want to have their videos on YouTube. Yeah. And so most of the, and also uh, old students, where we're talking about absolutely personal stuff will oftentimes not get on, like in some cases, how to deal with daddy. So a lot of uh, the videos don't make it on, but people are from all over the world. Now, the thing that's kind of interesting is now that there are so many videos on YouTube, a lot of people don't call anymore. They just watch the old videos. But I have a lot of new students coming, sometimes too many. But so far, so good. There's
0: been quite an upwelling, I think, on the Internet, a sort of... um... An enthusiasm for your calls, and a lot of people reporting how much they've enjoyed it and how much they've benefited from those calls and sort of spreading the word around. There's, there's there's quite a buzz about it, I would
1: say. Good. That means I don't have to work anymore. <laughs> My job is done here. <laughs> what needed to be done has been done, and there's nothing more to do. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, you just said that it's a buzz. That's all that was needed was just the buzz, now that the buzz is going, my job is done. Surely the buzz will mean even more people are going to call you and you have to work even harder. I know, but I'm. what I'm saying is I'm satisfied with the way things are. This is good. The job is done.
0: <laughs> so I'd like to sort of come full circle. We started with your story, and I know you do prefer to talk about the Dhamma as you as you received it and not so much about yourself, but... Uh, by way of coming full circle, and in terms of your biography as we start, as we bring this interview towards towards a close, I'm not sure quite how to phrase this question. Do it with four-letter words. <laughs> and exclamation points. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I understand that some people are prickly about such, uh, about such questions, so, you know, you could, by all means, palm it off, if that's the case. And I don't mean to be disrespectful when I ask it. But... What has been your experience? We talked about attainments. We talked about our hatship and all this sort of thing. Going on from that cootie in 1980, was it 1984, 1985? What has been your experience of the path? Where has it led you? What has your
1: results been? Um, Things have been good for a long time. Um, I've been teaching for a long time, taught in America back in the, the 2000s Um, and it was four or five years ago when achan po said that it's time to go teach just the super mundane dhamma on the on the internet or on skype with that because i'm spending now so much time with students i'm in the dhamma so much of the time so I'm yeah. really into it now. Dedicated in the sense of uh, um, sometimes I'll get the book out and read it to the students. Other times I'll send them uh, the poly uh, to start the students learning how they can pick out poly interesting poly words so that they can see both the um, uh, the fact that it's an Indo-European language. So many of the words that they know already have a more ancient definition an example of that was one that we just did today and that is the um, uh the word that's used in the anapanasati sutta and other places is the word tranquility or tranquilizing the body which is a really a misconception and that the actual pali word the basis of it is the word uh, uh passam, which has to do with being passive and so that word passive then is a whole lot easier to, to 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 attain. It's just to relax, just to, you know, stop doing and just be passive. Mm-hmm. And so um, when the body becomes passive, that means that it's not agitated or worried, or just relaxed. But when you use words like tranquilize and tranquility and all of that, the first idea that I have is <laughs> hunters with Rifles that shoot darts <laughs> and then somebody is completely out of it but but tranquilizing here just means to uh, and um, it can also mean like uh, 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 to give it a pass to let it pass on by and so that would be a better way of uh, uh, speaking on it rather than tran- tranquility. Because tranquility, wow, when you hear that word, it sounds like it's so hard to do.
0: So um, I might uh, take from that then that you're, you're, you said two things. You said that Ajahn Po asked you to teach, and I don't know in, in in that traditional lineage if that's an equivalent recognition of some sort of attainment. I presume it must be. And also you said you've been fine for a long time. And that sounds similar to the way you described how you would check or yourself or another to see if they were in our hat?
1: Uh, <laughs> actually, um, most of the people, when they hear those kinds of words, they'll put some sort of magic to it or some sort of bragging to it or whatnot, like that. That it's better to not deal with the labels, but rather to deal with the events one by one as they occur and stop putting that stuff together into a neat package and and give it a label or a handle or whatever like that for people to pick up. The word enlightenment is like that. Here's, here's a way of looking at it. If you're completely satisfied and then you hear this thing galloping up called enlightenment, but you're completely satisfied as you are. So you don't need it at all. So you can just let it pass on by. Then that's being really satisfied. But then you have someone who gets enlightened. Boy, he's been working on that for a while, and now he's attained it. And then he's heard, oh, wait a minute, there's a higher enlightenment. He says, okay, I'll get that too. Well, now his enlightenment is not satisfactory. He's just satisfied with being enlightened. He wants even more. Okay? That way you can see that, wait a minute, the the concept of enlightenment is a nebulous concept. It really doesn't mean anything, or most for most people, whatever it means, it's got some magic built into it, mm-hmm. rather than having a really good time, having a really nice life, that the labels are in fact one of the things that keep us from being satisfied. Mm-hmm. When people would ask those kinds of questions of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, his answer would be, who or what is it that can be enlightened? So he's directly confronting them Is what do you mean? What's what's your definition of enlightenment? But it's also best to not look at it that way, that the job of a good dharma teller is one who takes the, the students out of the relationship. This is part, going back to the way that I felt treated at Wat so and Mo, is to not treat the students like you're the teacher and they're the student, or to not take... Um, uh, operate like you're the psychotherapist and they're the client because that client psychotherapist relationship will remain there as long as the psychotherapist can get money out of the client. That, in fact, there comes a time when the client no longer needs the psychologist, but the psychologist still wants that paycheck. He's still now, he's the one who needs the client. This is yeah. what they call transference and countertransference. And sometimes those needs are money, and sometimes those needs are sexual favors, or all kinds of things that can happen. But one of the things that will always remain is it's a one-up, one-down system. One of them is, I'm, I'm okay, and you're not Okay. So what we need to do is to elevate so that we're friends now, that we're equals, that we're up here together, and we're having too much of a ball to try to point fingers at each other. But when we look at the way that people look at the word arahant and uh, enlightenment and even nibbana and those kinds of words, it always has to do with uh, him but not him or a competitive element rather than accepting people as they are. And so one of the ways of saying it is, is that uh, the answer to that question, is a particular teacher enlightened or not? The answer is, ask the students. Every student will have his own opinion, and that's the opinion that matters. The opinion of the teacher to himself is is not necessarily the the, the opinion that people are going to have anyway. They're going to have the opinion of this is my opinion and I see that and I think he's this, that, and the other thing. And he's not going to convince me out of it because he calls himself something else. And so that's a more natural way of doing it rather than building this hierarchy or this ladder. I hope that that didn't answer your question and satisfied you at the same time. Oh, <laughs> well, I think you did both. You did both. You
0: answered it just fine there. Very interesting. Well, Damorato, it's been so fun talking to you. How can people get in touch with you? How can they? You know, I'm sure there'll be people listen to this and think, oh, "I'd love to have a Skype call with Damorato and start learning about these sorts of
1: things." How can they reach you? Uh, more recent videos will have that uh, the Skype address for people to, to call. I think yep. I eventually even put in a note saying you don't have to uh, uh, have it recorded because a lot of people would be reluctant. They see all of these videos and it says, oh, I don't want my face on that. <laughs> and so they don't have to have it recorded. A lot of most of the videos, in fact, are not recorded.
0: i put all of those links and information in the uh, show notes of this podcast so people uh, who are listening can just scroll down and find that directly there. Uh, Damarata, thank you very much. Any last words or things you'd like to say before we close our conversation? Don't worry, be happy. Thank you, Damarata. <laughs> thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.